This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Boy, we've been talking about this issue for the longest time, and now there are some statistics that really indicate that we got ourselves a major problem bordering on crisis. As a matter of fact, the issue of overcrowding at hospitals continues with the release of numbers uh, by the Ontario Hospital Association who are demanding, pleading with this provincial government to increase funding to 5.5% uh, to suggest that it's in critical condition right now. There's a massive understatement. Andrea Horvath, the leader of the uh, provincial NDP party, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the numbers. Andrea, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay, Bill. How are you? Well, troubled by this. I mean, uh, you know, we've known for years and we've talked about this, about how we need to revamp the system and we need to retool the system. And, and governments uh, say, yeah, yep, yep, yep. And they, but uh, not a whole lot's getting done about this. And I, it's, I think it's fair to say we're in a crisis situation here. I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, we started releasing uh, freedom of information numbers in May of last year uh, to start illustrating what we were hearing anecdotally from folks. And we kept hearing about hospital hallway medicine, and we kept hearing horror stories from families. So we started doing some of the research. And as I said, for a year and a half now, we've been releasing, you know, what really are horrifying numbers that represent untenable situations that families are being put in in our hospitals and so uh, it, it, of course we just released numbers yesterday about St. Joe's where uh, where we've had since just this year since June to October uh, 105% capacity each and every day that means between 5 and 31 people every day waiting for an inpatient bed. I mean, it's, it's absolutely unacceptable. Uh, folks are in hallways, in lounges, in, you know, TV rooms without a, a call button to push for a nurse uh, and forced to share washroom facilities that are inadequate. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's a terrible, terrible situation. And there have been 10 years of budget freezes by the government. I mean, they were either uh, uh, funding at inflation or below inflation uh, for for 10 years, and that's um, that's not good enough, right? I mean, not at inflation, below inflation or freezing. I mean, that's what happened for 10 years, and that's just, it's not acceptable. I mean, you end up in a situation where we are now, where the OHA, you're absolutely right, uh, has, is saying that we're on the brink of an absolute crisis in our hospitals, and you just ask any patient who's had to deal with it, any family member who's had to, had to watch their loved one in such a, you know, a, a terrible situation where there's no privacy, no dignity, uh, you know, very um, inadequate care, not because the frontline workers don't want to do the care, uh, but because this, the circumstances don't allow it. It's terrible. Well, there are, first of all, there, there's a matter of numbers here, but you know, and we've talked in the past about staff cutbacks, and when we talk to the hospital CEOs here in Hamilton and in other communities, uh, they've been singing this song for the longest time, and they get told by the government time after time, well, you guys just have to sharpen your pencils. You know, there's a lot of waste in your system. And, you know, for the government to be telling them that is a kettle calling the pot black as far as I'm concerned. But, I mean, there it is. But be that as it might, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, for the last couple of years, they've been having to deal with, I think it's about 1.6% increases. And, and that's below inflation, which basically means that you can't even provide the same service you did the year before. I mean, you've been in government long enough to know that if, you, if they don't have sustainable funding, you've got to start making cutbacks. We're talking about health care here, though. 
And, and I know it, it's the most important service for people. It's it's one of the basics, and and people expect their government to understand that and get it right. Well, why haven't they? What what's what's wrong? I mean, we can talk about this, and you and I have had this discussion. I've talked to the minister about this. I've talked to the premier about this. Yeah, you're right. We need more long term care facilities. We need to get some people out of primary care hospitals who don't really belong in there. Well, okay, you've been singing the song for the longest time. To to use the old phrase, where's the money? Exactly, and so that's the problem. So they, they, you know, the theoreticals around pushing funding to what they call community, which is long-term care, home care, that's fine, but it hasn't shown up. I mean, they had a, 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 a target back in, I think it was 2005, to get 30,000 long-term care beds renovated to make them up to standard. They've only achieved at this point in 2017, I think 5,000 of that 30,000 target. Now they've set another target for 35,000, uh, you know, over the next five or 10 years. It's just not good enough. And so they, they've not done the work to, to take the ALC patients, for example, out of hospital and, and, and provide the, the care in long-term care. They haven't uh, fixed our home care system. You know, I, I don't know about you, but certainly as an MPP, I get a lot of calls in my office about cutbacks to home care hours and inadequate response when it comes to people leaving hospital and, and getting uh, the home care that they need in a you know in a in a quick enough fa- in a quick enough fashion. You know, it's so it's not as if as if the money has actually showed up at the community level to, to take some of the pressure. And so now we have a crisis, you know, all the way around, if you will. In the hospitals, it continues to be a crisis. And, you know, I'm very worried, Bill, I have to tell you. I mean, we're hit, hit, hitting flu season now. If the hospitals are already overcrowded, I mean, we had an incident in the GTA just the other day where a person with pneumonia was literally turned away at the hospital uh, and, and sent to, to another hospital in a different community. Uh, that's pretty scary at the very beginning of the flu season. So I'm pretty concerned. But long-term care, home care, uh, and our hospitals are all um, absolutely in a crisis. And it's a uh, it's a, sh- a shameful commentary on where the Liberals have taken us after 14 years. Well, look, at here. let me connect some dots, because we've had this discussion about a number of different things that are happening right now. And we had an in-depth discussion last week about uh, about insurance and insurance rates and what's going on and how they're changing the regulations on that. And, and I've heard stories, and, and, and you know that we've done this on the program many times, about people, for instance, that are injured in an accident, and they're supposed to get X number of dollars of home care or physiotherapy. And then they, all of a sudden, those hours are cut back because the insurance companies, of course, have to keep their profit margins. Those people end up back in the emergency room, which, which is only putting more pressure on, on, on the hospital situations because they say, hey, I wanted to go home. I wanted to be looked after at home. You're not funding it for me now. So what do we do? They go right back into the ER, and that only exacerbates the problem. Yeah, you're right, and and the only people that win are the shareholders, you know, and the uh, of the big insurance companies. I mean, let's face it, that's that's who's winning when it comes to uh, auto insurance, and uh, and it's you know again, it's a system that the government, uh, the liberal governments, tinkered with off and on. They had the stretch goal of the fifteen percent, which they reduction, which they never did, um, you know, live up to. Uh, and they every time they change the system, it seems like it's better for the auto insurance industry uh, because they reduce the benefits, and meanwhile 
people. Well, that's how they do it. Same or less. Anytime, or any, anytime the government says we're going to reduce insurance rates, it's because the insurance company is going to cut back on on service and the, and the levels and what they're allowed to give because they have to make, because their their profit margins are guaranteed by the legislation. So it, it's yeah, I, I know true. I know it's it's not directly related to hospitals, but it is because where do people well, it go? The pressure exactly. It improves if that system is not providing the supports and the medical uh, shouldering the medical costs it should be shouldering. Then that goes back onto the public system, hundred percent. And you know something? What frustrates me about this, and I'm sure you know, when you've talked to members of the Ontario Hospital Association, they must share this frustration. This is not like we're simply saying to the government, "Look, we don't know what to do to fix this, but do something." We know what to do. We can look at other jurisdictions. You can go to the UK. You can go to Scandinavia. Uh, you can go a number of different places in Europe and and say, "Look at they're doing it right." They've got yeah, a much more effective system. It might cost a couple of bucks more, but you know you can look at any survey, and we've talked about this on the show thousands of times. People want health care. That's the number one priority every yeah. time you talk to people about what's most important to you. It's health care, and it's just not being done right here now. I mean, how could it not be, right? I mean, it's literally your life and the life of your loved ones, the, your quality of life, your, you know, your, uh, your ability to live a good life. It's all about health care. You know, it's, it was a, a sad thing. Yesterday I visited Sick Kids Hospital, and, and seeing the overcrowding even there, they're, they're at a 105% yesterday when I was there, occupancy. And, of course, let's not forget, the international standard for safe occupancy rates, and safe means uh, enough room and uh, capacity for, you know, staff to do their jobs properly, uh, you know, so the pressure is not as uh, as high. Is eighty five percent? Eighty five percent is the safe capacity. This is the the um, you know the occupancy rate that allows for or that ensures that you know proper um, um, infection control is happening. So you're not getting you know cross contamination of uh, you know of germs and uh, you know bugs and things like that across patients. We are in a situation now, and the OHA says this, where we're more than half of our hospitals are each and every day for, for you know, months and months and months on end now are significantly over the 85% that are at 100% or more, um, you know, almost all the time. And that's, I mean, it's a, re- a recipe for disaster. And again, as I said, you know, flu season's an issue. Uh, but as you're saying, I mean, this is something that we need to get a grip on and, and, and get right for, you know, for the folks today. But let's face it, we have a demographic where we have an aging population. And I know we talked about insurance, but this is another pressure uh, for our system as well, right? Well, sure. I mean, you want people that need joint replacements. That's going to take recovery time. Uh, the the home care is not necessarily there for them, so they may have to stay in the hospital longer. It goes on and on. Here's another fun fact, too, and excuse my cynicism here, but I, I was amazed when I started reading this document from the Ontario Hospital Association, Andrea. In Ontario, they spend less money per hospital patient than any other province in the country. What That's, that's once you get in the hospital, once you have a bed, you, the care level is less than in any other province in the country right now. They spend less. And I can't understand that in a province as rich as Ontario that, that, that brags about the health care system, that we're actually underfunding once people even get in there. That's, and that goes to staffing levels. That goes to the equipment that's available for them, et cetera. Uh, it's, it just underscores the fact that there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done here. 
Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, the government did squeeze the hospitals, and they, they claim that they were squeezing them to drive innovation. But look, after a decade, uh, it hasn't driven I- innovation. What it's left us with is a despicable hallway medicine crisis that, um, that people uh, don't deserve. I mean, folks, as you said, uh, and I agree, healthcare is number one. Hospitals should be there for us. Uh, you know when we need them, where we need them in our own communities, and uh, and this is uh, this is a, f- a fundamental. It's one of the basics that that government should be getting right. And we've made some commitments around making sure that we're funding hospitals to at least, at the bare minimum, cover inflation, population growth, unique community needs. I mean, let's face it; it's it's not a. I mean, it, it's people's lives that we're talking about. It's people's quality of life. It's people's ability to heal from what sometimes is the most uh, you know terrible situation they've ever had to face in their life uh, that ends them up in hospital. That, to, to, to have a system that fails them so poorly uh, these days is, uh, is just, it's not acceptable. Well, and I know the government's initial response to this was, well, we have increased funding. And, and I, I, on a technicality, they sort of have, because they froze it for so long. And I think about the last year and a half or so, they've increased it incrementally. But it's, it's, it's infinitesimal almost. Well, I, you to, know, it's, it's interesting. The OHA came out strong this year. Last year, I mean, th- in the current budget year that we're in now, so the budget was passed early, I don't know, May, mid-May, I guess, um, that budget, the government shorted the OHA ask. So in the budget that we're currently operating under, they shorted the OHA ask by $300 million. And the OHA was asking in their last budget submission to get that amount of money that they had requested just to keep a, a frayed system afloat. And that's what they asked for last year, and they were shorted. And now, now they're now they've you know they've sharpened their language. They're they're being quite blunt uh, with the government, and because they just can't they can't imagine going through yet another budget cycle and not getting what they need yet again. Well, what do we do about this? I mean, you've got numbers now that substantiate what we've been talking about for the last little while. The government is is holding firm and saying they're doing what they can right now, but clearly the system's broken. It absolutely is, and so, and as I said, I mean, we've made some commitments around both around funding. Uh, we've got our PharmaCare plan, which will take a lot of pressure off the hospitals because people will be able to stay uh, well, people will be able to get the prescriptions they need. Uh, but the other thing is, I mean, we're going so. Today is the last day. The legislature is not sitting uh, after today until after Family Day. Uh, the budget will come sh- in the spring at some point. Um, in the meantime, we're going to continue to keep the pressure on. Uh, we're going to keep, uh, you know, we're going to hammer at the government today uh, in question period again. Uh, we're going to keep the pressure on and keep people's awareness up uh, about what's happening. And folks, you know, need to um, they need to make sure that the government knows that uh, that this is not acceptable. That Ontarians don't want to see uh, any further damage done by Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals to our healthcare system. Funny you should mention Pharmacare. I did some research on this when we started doing comparators to other countries. And uh, for those that may not remember, uh, way back in the early 1960s when they set up this uh, system in Canada uh, for our Medicaid system, Pharmacare was supposed to be part of the program. And they said, no, we're not going to do it right away. We're going to get to it in just a little bit. That was 1964. It's now 2017, and we're waiting. And waiting yeah. and waiting. Yeah, no, it, it's it's the missing it's the missing puzzle piece of our healthcare system for sure. Absolutely, Andrea. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, obviously, I, I understand there's an election next year, so maybe this will be maybe this will be talked about a little bit more, and that that would be a good thing. Absolutely. Thanks Pre- a lot, Bill. Andrea, all right. If I don't see you, uh, a Merry Christmas. Have a happy holidays. And to you too. And uh, <laughs> enjoy the time down. Well, of course, yeah, you know, no such thing as time off for leaders. But anyway. <laughs> We appreciate the time, Andrea. Best of the holidays to you as well. Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath. And, and look, at this is, this is crossing party lines. This is a crisis right now that every one of us are facing. 
And right now, if you're healthy, God bless you. I hope you stay that way. But if you have to walk through the doors of a hospital uh, and you haven't done it for a while, uh, it's uh, it can be a, a gut-wrenching experience simply because the funding isn't there for the stuff that needs to be done. And other places are doing it. We should be watching, talking to them, and listening and improving. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Minimum wage increase, uh, phase one of it anyway, uh, comes into effect uh, just uh, into the new year. And it will ultimately go up to uh, to the ultimate goal, of course, of of 15%. And uh, it's causing some consternation. I had a number of shows over the last couple of months now uh, talking with chambers of commerce, talking with small business operators and large business operators who have expressed some concern on this. And, And to be clear... The overwhelming majority of people in business that have talked to me about this have said, look, we're not against the minimum wage increase. We're just thinking this is too much, too fast, and it's going to have an impact, especially on small businesses. Uh, Notwithstanding that, the government says that they're going to carry through with their timelines on this. One of the other agencies that uh, that we've heard from recently are residential care facilities. And uh, it's it's maybe not a voice that we hear that often, but it's a very integral part of, of the housing problem we have in this community and, to a certain extent, the health care problems that we've been talking about over the last little while. So to get a, an idea on how this is going to have an impact on that industry, uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program Kelvin Kane, who is president of the local chapter of the Ontario Home for Special Needs Association. Good to have you with us. And uh, Michael Power, who's a, a residential care facility operator here. Michael, thank you for being here as well. Thank Good you. to Good have morning. both of you here. Calvin, let me let me start with you. And maybe uh, for those who may not be aware exactly about what service you provide, what residential care facilities are, you've been around for a long time now, uh, and, and the service that, that's provided, not just here in this city, but in other cities around the province. Yes, thank you, Bill. Uh, we uh, of homes that are around the Hamilton area, and uh, we have uh, provide a 24-7 operation for uh, taking care of these vulnerable uh, people. Uh, we have uh, three meals a day. We Who are your residents? My residents are the vulnerable population. They're folks that have dual diagnosis uh, in terms of bipolar, depression, uh, mental health challenges. Uh, uh, folks who are periodically not taking their meds uh, that have to be on the medication, uh, f- depression, brain injuries, those are the folks that we deal with. For a with. number of reasons, cannot live independently. They cannot live but independently. They don't, but, but there was a time many years ago, as, as I'm sure some people who've been listening to this right now, Calvin, can say, well, those people were just institutionalized, uh, which was th- the way things were dealt with back then. This is more of an integration program uh, in back into the community. Yes, it is. It surely is. And, and a lot of the homes are integrated into the community, and uh, the folks are treated with dignity, and they're treated as just like anyone else. The problem is that they do have struggles uh, with their daily living and they need assistance in that way. And and yeah, you mentioned the medication, which is a key part of this when I've talked to operators about this uh, in the past, Michael. Uh, because they can't live independently, they oftentimes would forget to take medications. or, or uh, In other words, there's a, there's a care element to this. It isn't just a, a place where they can go and sleep at night. I mean, you have to look after them. They're fed through the course of a day as well. Well, that's it, uh, and it's so important. Uh, the housing and housing with supports is vitally important to this city. You know, just, uh, just so we don't lose this, we are part of the city's uh, solution here. We are full members of the uh, 10-year housing plan to deal with homelessness here in the city of Hamilton. And these uh, housing with supports is vitally important. And uh, right now, you know, there's a critical shortage of that. We've, and yet, at the same time, we're, we're looking at this minimum wage 
and our revenue is tied, uh, you know, the province has brought this down upon us and we're all in favor of helping not just the staff but the residents and all the stakeholders. And we've been working very carefully with our city partners and we need a solution. We think we are part of the solution to the housing crisis. We have excess capacity. We've got beds ready to go, licensed and inspected. And we feel at this moment in time, we're asking for some consideration for some emergency help for January the 1st. We want to keep uh, the homes open. We want the supports to keep, uh, keep those supports in place. And as I say, it's, it's so vitally important that this be maintained and protected. It's a great asset that Hamilton has. Let's work together. Let's, uh, let's find a solution to some of these housing problems that have been in the news so uh, prevalent. I want to back up just a step to something that Michael just said there, Calvin, about regulation. And uh, because there's been some concern about that over the years, and, and you and I were talking just before we got the segment going here, that uh, uh, there were some unscrupulous operators. I guess there are in just about every enterprise from time to time. Uh, they're the ones that get the headlines, and, and all of a sudden I think there was a, a perception in some areas that, that well, th- you know, th- this is kind of a shady business. It's not. It's well-regulated, uh, especially here in Hamilton. Hamilton is the most regulated out of all Hamilton region is the most regulated out of all the regions in Ontario. Uh, we have public health nurse comes in. We have the public health comes in. We got a fire come in to check on the fire situation and uh, equipment. We have uh, Ontario, the hydro people come in and check as well every two years. So we are heavily regulated uh, with inspections uh, to keep quality, quality of living, quality of food, uh, yes. quality of care. Yes, and and as the food aspect is concerned, we have to be serving based upon the the Canadian Food Guide with respect to the nutrition as well as the frequency of their meals. Yeah, I just want to put that in there as part of the the conversation here so people have an understanding uh, of what goes on in these facilities and the kind of care that's uh, that's being offered here. Yeah. But but the point's well taken here that uh, you can't simply say, well, we'll raise our rates. Uh, to accommodate this. I mean, because that's, that's the answer the government's saying to some businesses. Well, you know, if the costs go up, well, you can just raise your prices or do something else. Uh, you, you're pretty limited as to what you can do. We're unique in the sense that we have a, a, a contract agreement with the city and it's a set rate, and the set rate is about $50 a day that we, we have to use to basically provide all this care and provide the housing and staff staffing uh, to make sure that we comply with the regulation. So, you're, lo- you're capped. That's the money you're going to get. Uh, your costs are going to go up now because that staff that are working for you right now are going to have to be paid more. Yes, how, definitely. How, how, you gonna hand- how are you going to handle this? How are you going to absorb that? Well, that's the situation that we're trying to bring forth, that some of these homes will not be able to operate, uh, if not most of them, will not be a- able to absorb this uh, increase, and therefore there will be closures in when there are closures, where does these people go? Well, there's two elements to that. First of all, if you reduce staff, like some small businesses are telling me they're going to have to do, that reduces your level of care. Yes, it does. And it also increases uh, the way of compliance. Well, there's the problem. Uh, you can't just say, well, I had 10 staff, now I'm going to have five. Uh, if you don't maintain a certain level of compliance, you lose your license. Yes, you do. So you close down. Yes, you do. So the, it's it's it goes downhill pretty quickly here. Fairly quickly, in fact, you know, January first. Yes, I expect, and I've gotten some calls so far with uh, other operators making alarm or concerns about actually closing the business in the, the first quarter of 2018. So I am, you know, where are these folks going to go? We don't really have anywhere. The shelters are full, and uh, there is no place to go uh, other than places that they might not be safe where they are. 
which are unregulated. I mean, there may well be options, but I mean, as, as we've talked about on this program many times, especially with the colder weather coming up here, Michael, uh, shelters are usually not the, the long-term answer for anybody. Uh, and, and they're not going to get the same level of care. They may or may not be able to provide, for instance, uh, medications for them, etc. This is this is a rather drastic situation. My main concern here, obviously, is, and I think yours is, is for the welfare of the residents that you're looking after. Well, we're looking at uh, that very carefully, and we're talking to a lot of people. Councillor Whitehead, as you know, has done a great job as the chair of the working group, and we're working very closely with that group that meets regularly. But as as we were saying. We've got to be concerned with our staff at all times, with the health and welfare of our residents. And yet, here we are, we're reading about the situation with the hotels and the runaway cost there. That number has doubled recently. It could hit 800000 this year. We have people, the shelters have a job to do, and they do a great job. But unfortunately, it's also true that there are, in fact, people in the shelters today, currently, who otherwise, and in the past, have been in RCFs. If you got that sorted out... You would have capacity in the shelters today to take in those women and those children who are right now in the hotels at great cost to the city. So I'm saying let's work together. Let's sort this out so the shelters play their important role, the RCFs play their role. Let's find a way to keep them open. Let's keep the staff employed. Let's deliver that quality housing with supports that is so vitally important. Let's work together. But are you, why isn't that happening now, though, Michael? I mean, why is does, it sounds to me as if the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. You've got all these agencies that are providing great, you know, services here in the community, but they're not integrated to the point that oh, you're doing that. Well, that's kind of redundant. We're doing that. Yeah. And and as a result, people are, are well, there are people falling through the cracks. I think what we need we need to get some uh, political leadership, additional leadership that's going to say, look, let's let's get some of the top bureaucrats together. Let's sort this out. Let's work together. You know, and I know that there is political support there, and we've seen that, but we've got to break through this logjam log and make sure we've got the emergency funding to stay open, and let's sort out this issue. You know, you've got people in hospitals now. They're busting at the seams. They need emergency money because they're at 125% capacity. The shelters are full. You've got people inappropriately placed. You've got people in hotels, and yet here we are looking at possibly closing down due to these uh, cost increases. And that's just one of the costs, by the way. Uh, it's worth noting, the city hired an independent consultant seven years ago, back in 2011, thereabouts. And that independent consultant did an exhaustive review. They looked at the supports, the cost structures, such as they were, and they concluded back then that we needed 55 to $61 per day to stay open and to do the job and to do the job effectively and well. Sadly, that didn't happen. Here we are seven years later, our revenue's been tied. We're still at 50, and yet our costs are running away. And I don't care if you want to talk about insurance, if you want to talk taxes, if you want... By the way, there's almost a million dollars a year that flows back to the city uh, from these homes in taxes, the cost of labor, food, uh, so on. It's just, it's out of control. Well, you're running, you're running a home. You're running a residence, just like, yeah. you know, anybody that owns a home can tell you. You know, the price of heating the thing has gone up. You know, the, the cost of food has gone up, et cetera, et cetera, exactly. et cetera. You have all those costs... So we need help, and what we're saying, we're saying let's work together, let's keep the homes open, let's utilize the beds that are there, and we can be part of the solution. We can actually help the city get through this, but we need them to step up and do their part, find that reserve to work with us, let's keep these homes open, let's keep our staff employed. One of the big problems I had with this legislation, and, and we've talked with government officials about this. Matter of fact, I got the minister coming on again next week, uh, who's uh, Mr. Flynn, who's going to talk to us about the minimum wage. 
is that I don't know that they thought this whole thing through. And and that's one of the mm-hmm. frustrations I think we often feel when governments make good news announcements and, and putting more money into the pockets of people that are vulnerable. That's That's a good thing, right? Yeah. But what about the implications and the ramifications of that? And one of them is uh, it has an impact on government costs, too. There are people that work for government and in government-surrounded agencies that are going to be impacted, and you guys fall under that umbrella. Uh, Whose door do you knock on now to say, wait a second here, you've got to do something for us? Are you talking to the city? the province Calvin where do you go well we're talking to the city as well. we're talking to the city and we do have a, a provincial uh, a branch that is talking to uh, the provincial uh, government as well but it's uh, before the announcement of the actual legislation being law it was wait until it becomes law now it's law now we're waiting for them to react so it's very slow but 2018 January 1st will be here fairly soon and the results will be apparent but like any other business, you've got to develop a plan. You've got to uh, anticipate costs. Uh, you just don't go week to week. I mean, you've got to anticipate that this is going to be an additional cost right now. And how do operators, as they're doing their, their business plans for 2018, how do they accommodate this? Because right now, the government hasn't really come forward and says, we'll, we'll look at we got your back. They're not doing anything right now. Well, that's the situation that we're finding ourselves in because uh, they will be closures for the, the, that simple reason. That we just cannot operate. And um, it's very important uh, for us as operators, as well as uh, talking to the residents, that it is a strong possibility that they will be at risk of being homeless. But once you close your door, they don't know where to go. The parents who can take them in, take them in, but most of the time we find that that's just for a short term. They cannot um, handle the situation, and therefore, yes, they will have problems either on the street or in the shelters. What about the city's role in this? You mentioned that you've got partnerships and you do talk, and there is a, com- a committee, and you mentioned Councillor Whitehead chairs that committee, and that, that includes some city staff and, of course, members of, of your uh, industry as well. Are they are they devising a plan? Do you, is, there, is there a discussion about what the city's role might be to try to help you guys in the short term? Uh, we did have a meeting uh, fairly recently, and uh, the city's position at that time, uh, speaking with some people in the housing department, is that their hands are tied because uh, they've got no money as well. So what we're saying, we're saying now it's time to really get serious about this. Let's go back to the drawing board. Let's take a really hard look at this. There's got to be some emergency relief here. The city has got to approach the province. The province has put this plan in place. That was their decision. The city is now left with trying to pick up the pieces. So the city has to take a two-pronged approach. One, they've got to examine emergency relief Uh, immediately to keep these homes open and two they've got to go back to their provincial partners and look for some emergency money to flow through to the city in order to deal with this problem we're dealing with homeless people it's vitally important you are literally putting a roof over the head of people that might not otherwise have some and and your point's well taken i think calvin there may be some families that can say okay we'll we'll bring that individual back in with us and and you know in a basement apartment or a bedroom whatever the case might be but that's going to put certain pressures on family that maybe they may or may not be able to accommodate uh who's going to look after them who's going to make sure that they're there to to give meds i mean if you yeah. if you're off working for through the course of the day Who's looking after that individual? Yeah, we found we found in the past that's never a good experience. That's why they're in a home. It's never a good experience because because uh, the folks, uh, the parent working or elderly themselves themselves that cannot handle the situation or the diagnosis, and therefore we're putting that person at risk 
of causing even further damage to their mental health. So you're you're in a conundrum, and we're just talking with the Hamilton situation, but this is happening in cities right across the province. Yes, yes it is, yes it is. Hamilton, though, is the most regulated, meaning that our licensing uh, fees are even more than the basic licensing fees across. We're the highest licensed uh, in the region. So therefore, our costs is ve- are very high. Uh, yes, the, the real estate market has taken a boom, uh, and so is our taxes as well. And uh, we really don't have the income or we're not getting the income to s- supplement any of this uh, minimum wage that's going to be coming in. And therefore, you know, we're, we're on the show to just bring this to light to let a- everyone know that, yes, there will be problems in 2008 in this sector. How many, ballpark figure, how many residences do you actually have here in the city? We have uh, subsidized residents right now in homes around 770. And we have a license uh, amount of uh, accommodation for 1,200. So there's a 400 gap that's there that's underutilized that we're saying that, hey, we can be part of the solution and to help some of the homeless people that are in shelters, that are in hospitals, if the city would step up and allow these. Well, yeah, from what you're saying, you can, but you can't. In yes. other words, you can fill those right now. Yes. And that would be great, except that that, that would mean more staff. That would be an increased cost, and you're already absorbing this cost. So yes. you, you need some answers. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And we've been asking the city for the uh, to for a plan, and uh, they're telling us, basically, we'll wait. Uh, their hands are tied. There's no funds. We've got one funding stream, which is uh, uh, the, it's called a chippy fund, and that's uh, a fund funding that comes across for the shelters, for uh, the RCFs, uh, and so forth for the food bank, and we're part of that. And when when uh, they get this money, they divide the money up between all five stakeholders. And uh, at this point, right now, I can tell you that the shelters are actually funded more than the RCFs. And and you don't want to take one from the other. No, I mean, what we want no. is equity. No. we want we want to make sure everybody has what they need. That's right. We want to make sure if they have what they need to function at capacity at around three hundred beds, we need uh, funding to support uh, twelve hundred or seven hundred and seven hundred and seventy beds to be able to hire and keep our staff to be able to keep the lights on to be able to uh, supply the services that these folks need. It's, it's another side of this story about the minimum wage increase. And I, I, I you know we've talked with people from the Poverty Roundtable, and we've talked about the, the, the bonuses to this and the pluses to this and how important it is for people that are, are trying to, to get themselves out of the hole and, and better themselves. But there are ramifications, and, and the government's got to step up here and recognize it and, and help uh, your agency and many others like that. Gentlemen, thanks so much for coming in today. Uh, please Th- stay in touch as this rolls out over the next couple of weeks, and uh, we'll have further discussions. Thank we you. Thank, Thank you, you, Bill. Good to have you with us. Calvin Kane and uh, Michael Power, uh, residential care facility operators. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Lots of pushback about uh, the Ontario Municipal Board's decision to uh, tell Hamilton City Council what they're going to be doing vis-a-vis ward boundaries. You, you know, of course, the debate that went on and the consultant's report, etc., etc. And uh, finally, uh, a couple of citizens went to the Ontario Municipal Board and said, we don't agree with Council's uh, revised list of uh, the ward boundaries, which many people consider to be rather self-serving. So the OMB finally ruled on that, and uh, they took option two from that consultant's report, much to the chagrin of, of free people on City Council. 
Uh, yesterday, we had an interesting discussion with uh, Brenda Johnson, one of the counselors who's uh, impacted by this, and former Hamilton Mayor Larry DeAnne, uh, that social media is still alive and, uh, and well with a lot of pushback on both sides of this issue. But to give you a different perspective on this, I want to bring our next guest onto the program. Uh, Brad Clark is a former Hamilton City Councilor, of course, but Brad is also a former MPP and former Cabinet Minister. And uh, was uh, down at Queen's Park when this whole thing was going on. And I got an interesting note from him. And I said, Brad, you got to come on and talk about this. So we're pleased to welcome Brad Clark back to the Bill Keller Show on CHML. Brad, how you been doing? I have been doing great. How about yourself, sir? Life is good. Uh, living the dream. Getting ready for Christmas like all of us, I guess. <laughs> right on. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about this. I'm going to go to the Wayback Machine here, Brad, to the late 1990s when this debate was raging. And, and, and you tend to get rather insular when you get into things like this. You know, you know, we're thinking about what was happening here in the city and about the debate. And, and you can remember some of the stuff that was going on. And uh, should we amalgamate? Shouldn't we? And then uh, some of the mayors of some of the surrounding communities got together and kind of a Hail Mary pass and said, no, 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 we'll form our own city. Just leave Hamilton out of this. And it, it, it got rather silly and a little crazy for a, a longest time here. What was the going on at Queen's Park at that time, and how was it being viewed? At, at Queen's Park, um, they, they, <laughs> the government was of the opinion that the politicians in Hamilton wanted to move forward with amalgamation. Um, but that they, for whatever reason, couldn't get there. And you'll recall the the gardener and the church report, and yeah. actually there was a joint uh, regional council meeting and a, um, um, all of the municipalities. So they brought all the cities together and the region in one big room at the convention center. Um, and from that, um, again, there was a suggestion to the province to amalgamate, including the vast majority of the municipalities except for Flamborough, Dundas, and Ancaster. Um, so from that, they decided that they were going to amalgamate. Um, I opposed it and voted against the government uh, three times on that particular uh, issue. Uh, and then we got into um, really the implementation phase. What does the bill look like? And, and, and that was that was even a little gray. I mean, because we went through a couple of different ministers in those days. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Minister Gilchrist was actually the guy who was in charge of this at the initial stages. Uh, and then there was a bit of a cabinet shuffle, and and uh, and he left, and and was replaced, and and, uh, and on and on it went. And we all this time we we're asking, okay, what's actually going to be happening here? And uh, the I, I don't want to say there were mixed messages, but I think probably some people on city council had some some disjointed ideas about exactly what was expected of them as a council. Well, and they had different agendas. No kidding. Uh, just to be clear, and Minister, that's never happened before. Uh, no, not in politics. Uh, Minister Clements was the Minister of Environment, and he was given, you were correct, um, when Minister Gilchrist was pushed aside by the Premier, um, Minister Clement ended up having two portfolios, so he was Municipal Affairs uh, as well as Environment. And the first draft of Bill 25, which was um, the bill that actually implemented amalgamation, uh, called for 13 wards and one mayor. Uh, and, of course, there was a lot of pushback from the outlying municipalities about the balance of power and the transitioning. And so I went to Minister Clement and Premier Harris and suggested that we add two seats to bring it to 15 um, to enable the municipality to transition into this new city a little bit more easily uh, without the fears of, of the suburbs being overwhelmed by the urban side. Did, did you look at that as a, as a compromise proposition, Brad? 
It was. It was a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, it was a compromised position. Uh, we talked to the mayors of the municipalities, uh, and at the end of the day, uh, everyone agreed that it was a good move, except Mayor Morrow, who really wanted Hamilton to have um, uh, the final say on most things. Which I, again, I, I understand Mayor Morrow's agenda. <laughs> that was his job at the time. Well, and that was that was the problem. I mean, for those that don't recall those days, we still had two tier government. There was a regional government and a city government, and everybody who was on Hamilton City Council sat on regional government. And and uh, the representatives of of the other jurisdictions, I think, had two members each uh, for for their jurisdictions. Correct. So as that turned out, of course, everybody wanted to have a say in exactly how this was going to shape up. And and the the arguments that were out there right now really only fueled the discrepancies and, and the confusion and, and and probably the controversy, didn't they, Brad? Because you had a lot of people from the old city, if I can use that phrase, that were simply saying, "We're getting screwed by these guys. We're paying for all these social services, and so they're not paying anything, and we want equity." And 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 the other guys were saying, "Well, you're just going to you know send our taxes skyrocketing." And and there was probably, like most arguments, a shred of of truth in both of them at the same time. Uh, which only made things more incongruous, I guess, and, and probably for you guys at Queen's Park, virtually impossible to try to please everybody. Oh, yeah, at, at that point we knew that there was no way we could please everybody. Um, but the compromise was that there would at least be some semblance of balance uh, during the transitional phases of this new city. And we knew that as the population grew in the, in the wards, uh, and all of the growth, um, as as we knew, every all of the experts, Bill said that all of the growth was going to be outside of the urban proper of Hamilton. Um, a lot and, of it was supposed to be in the riding you represented up in Stony Creek. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, the projections back then were were quite significant. So based on those expectations, that um, we said, well, um, let's put in the fifteen plus the mayor. Uh, and then, you know, 10 years from now, this should be reviewed. And that's what, what all of, I mean, if anyone who does any research on it will find all of the records, the Hansard, everything. I was consistently saying, as was Minister Clement, the municipality in 10 years will review the ward boundaries and they will base it on the population growth. But and that was the expectation. That was the expectation, and of course it didn't happen for, I think it was 17 years now. <laughs> yeah, so by 2010, Council probably should have done something about this. Yes, ab- absolutely. Now, uh, let's let's talk about what the criteria was going to be, because you just alluded to the fact that population changes and population pockets needed to be considered. Now, that has uh, has changed considerably, and you've heard the debate over the last couple of months now, Brad, that that some people are saying, well, what about this? What about rural versus urban? What about uh, cultural centers, et cetera? There's a lot more being thrown into here as, as barometers on this. Was, was that even considered by the provincial government at the time? At, at the time we looked at um, uh, the compromise was to, to basically create wards that were semblances, and I use that term deliberately, of the former municipalities. So to the best of our abilities, um, we wanted to make sure that the former municipalities had sufficient representation in the new city of Hamilton. But there was never, ever any warranty uh, given by the government over myself that those um, ward boundaries would, would stay that status quo in perpetuity. It's impossible. The Municipal Act doesn't contemplate that. 
um, it's just not possible to tell a municipality that here's your ward boundaries and they will never change. Yet, you were hearing some of the comments from some of the councillors. I think Councillor Ferguson up in Ancaster had mentioned that he was under the impression that there was some assurance that uh, that those boundaries weren't going to change. I Now, I don't remember that, uh, and I wasn't you know, privy to all, all the stuff that was going on, obviously, but I was a member of city council at that time, and I don't remember those assurances. I do remember the discussion about a, a review after a number of years, and the likelihood of some change was going to happen. As a matter of fact, in Petzl, the Almost, uh, I guess, when you guys actually passed the legislation, there was still some debate about how many wards there were going to be in the old city because of population shifts. That's correct. Um, and there was push. I mean, at the time, Mayor Morrow uh, and yourself, Bill, uh, you were on council at yep. the time, um, were making a very valid argument that um, this can't stay like this forever. As the city changes, the ward boundaries would have to change. Uh, and, and the government agreed. The minister agreed, the Ministry of, of uh, Municipal Affairs agreed, and the Municipal Act contemplates that. So it's left with the local municipality to review ward boundaries um, and keep them um, consistent with the population growth so that one area of a municipality doesn't lose the value of their vote over another area of a municipality. Now you've worked on both sides of the fence, Brad. You were obviously an MPP and, and representing that area, and then, of course, later on represented essentially the same area as, as a member of city council. Uh, as time went on, and, and you saw that evolution happen in your political career with, with your residents, how important was it that for them to say, I want that boundary to stay where it is? Did you get that a lot? Or they, I, I mean, they're in Stony Creek, and it's going to be Stony Creek, but if the boundary moves a block or two one way or another, does it really matter that much to people? No, it doesn't. Um, it, that's inside baseball usually for um, the politicians, uh, where it does become a concern for the electors is when you have a small, um, a, a perhaps a large geographical area like Council Pursuit's ward, um, which is very significant, but a very small population, and he has a vote for 14,000 people, and then you look at another area that could be approaching 70,000 people, and they only have one vote. At that point, when contentious issues are coming before the council, people are looking at that and saying, well, geez, <laughs> their vote is heavily weighted versus my vote in my ward. And And that's... I, I don't know if we're ever going to find a solution to that. That's still a contentious point 17 years later. It is, um, and, and these ward boundary changes that were proposed um, by the consultants uh, tried to come up with a balance that would still enable um, the rural components to have a significant representation on council. And so, uh, you know, I, I was comfortable with what the option was and comfortable with the OMB decision. Because again, you're looking at, I think it's six wards now that have a very clear urban-rural mix. And so as a councillor in that area, um, and, and those six councillors for the last little while actually had that type of urban-rural mix, they did a good job on representing rural issues as well as urban issues. Well, sure. And, and, and when you look at the Ancaster riding as a for instance, and uh, Lloyd's uh, brother, uh, of course, Murray Ferguson was the counselor uh, at the time of amalgamation. Uh, that 
was a, a, an area with a large agricultural and rural population. The urban part of that ward has grown considerably in the last 17 years. Uh, and you could argue that, well, what about that balance there? But, I mean, I, I think both brothers, both Fergusons, have done a, a very good job of handling that. You had the same sort of thing. You had a rural component in your riding and in your ward, of course, up on Stony Creek Mountain. A lot of that has, has increased now with the residential growth and commercial growth that's gone on up there. But that evolution is inevitable, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, when I was first elected MPP, my um, riding had a significant rural component as well as an urban component. As a matter of fact, the Stony Creek riding was held up as a microcosm for the province of Ontario. It had that type of mix. Um, and, and as a councillor, I also had, when I was initially elected as councillor, some significant um, agricultural properties that were being cash cropped. And over time, they have been sold off and been developed. Um, but as issues come forward, I got to tell you, I mean, I mean, I find it a little bit insulting when people say that um, the rural area won't have uh, good representation in this new makeup. When we have Councillor uh, Ferguson, Councillor Brenda Johnson, Councillor Maria Pearson, um, Councillor uh, Partridge, they've done a remarkable job of representing the agricultural and rural area and yet they had significant urban areas in their ward. So it's, it's completely specious for anyone to argue that the rural components of Hamilton has lost a voice in this new makeup. Well, and, and I, I share your concern about that, and, and, and I'm wondering if people are trying to split hairs here and just figure that, well, we've got to have somebody who is expert in that and that alone. Uh, you, you're going to elect, and, and I'm hoping that we, the voters in this community, are going to elect 15 people plus a mayor who are well-versed in handling all kinds of issues. I mean, that's their job. Uh, it's one thing to say that you may have expertise in one over another, but you darn well better learn something about the other areas of that as well, because you're going to have to vote on these things. Well, and it's about representation. So if you are a councillor in a new ward that has um, a good chunk of agricultural property as well as some significant urban settlement areas, um, you have to find that balance. And when you're have issues that are a concern for your agriculture community, they do get informed about it, and they do advocate accordingly for those agricultural issues. We've seen that happen over the last 15 years. Um, so I can't, in good faith, say, oh, we're in trouble here because the agricultural community, rural community, has lost their voice. They have not lost their voice. The voice is still there, and we have very experienced counselors who have proven themselves capable of representing both urban and rural areas. And next year, there may well be others who are going to step up and run for those seats that may have those same qualifications. Listen, i got about a minute left here, uh, but I've got to ask you this. I mean, you've always been somebody who's been very particular about process uh, in government, both provincially and, of course, at the municipal level. Uh, some counselors are making noises here like they want to appeal this. We're told there's going to be a closed-door meeting about this, and I'm assuming that their rationale for this is going to be, well, to receive legal advice. This is very much a public issue. Should this debate not be happening in open session? Oh, I 100% agree. Uh, this is something that goes to the heart of what a democracy is, um, and the public should hear uh, whatever the legal advice is, and the council has the discretion to waive their, their uh, solicitor-client privilege at any time, and in this case, it should be done. They should hear this, the solicitor's advice in public. They should hear the staff's advice in public, and they should have that discussion in public because it is affecting every single voter in this community. Well, and they've already spent considerable amount of money on this issue. Uh, that's our money. Now, 
you know, they're not taxing us for it, but it's coming from reserves. And where do the reserves come from? It's still our money. And I'd like to know how much they've spent on this so far before they decide they want to go further. Uh, transparency is key, especially when you're dealing with someone's vote. So, uh, I mean, you, when you break this down right to the simplest area, we're talking about the balance of votes across the entire municipality. And if they have that discussion and receive that advice in camera, uh, then there's going to be a lot of cynicism, a lot of speculation, and I'm afraid that they would wear that. So it's better to be transparent on an issue like this. Brad Clark, former city councilor and, of course, former uh, government minister uh, for the Ontario legislature. Brad, thanks again for the time. Great talking with you. And uh, Merry Christmas to you and the family. Thank you. God bless. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.